And now, right to your hosts of Down the Garden Path, Joanne Shaw and Matthew Dressing. Down the Garden Path, where we discuss down-to-earth tips and advice while doing our best to help you seasonally manage your garden and landscape. Hello there, I am Joanne Shaw, owner of Down-to-Earth Landscape Design, and with me is my co-host and co-author, Matthew Dressing. Good evening, everyone. Good evening, Joanne, and thank you for joining us. I'm Matthew Dressing, owner of Natural Affinity Garden Design. As landscape designers and gardeners, we believe it's important and possible to have great gardens, which are sustainable and low maintenance, and we want to help you make it happen. That's right. And so we're excited about tonight's show. Um, As everyone knows, seeing a monarch butterfly is a wonderful sight, but such sightings have become fewer and further between over the last decade. In the news and social media this summer, word that the iconic monarch butterfly is in danger of extinction has many saddened and upset, asking, how could I possibly make a difference? On tonight's episode of Down the Garden Path, we're joined by Mary Phillips, head of Garden for Wildlife at the National Wildlife Federation, to introduce us to their wonderful initiatives and share with us how we can play our part in growing a bright future for the monarch butterfly and many other iconic native wildlife species. So do you have a question for Mary about monarch butterflies? I know I do. (laughs) About Garden for Wildlife, the National Wildlife Federation, or the wonderful work she does? Send them here to Down the Garden Path podcast at hotmail.com. And just before we welcome Mary to the show, we'll read a little bit about her, introduce you. So for eight years, Mary has led Garden for Wildlife and Certified Wildlife Habitat as an ambassador for native plants. Her work ensures all habitat programs and resources are rooted in sustainable practices and the latest science. Since 1977, Garden for Wildlife has been the nation's oldest and largest backyard habitat program, generating and supporting millions of wildlife gardeners in North America. Most recently, Mary helped launch Garden for Wildlife Native Plants Collection. Mm -hmm. The goal of this social enterprise is to increase the native plant supply, reduce carbon impacts, and secure survival of iconic species, such as the monarch butterfly, native bees, and songbirds. The pilot launched in 2021, resulting in over 4,000 native plant collections sold in five months, translating to 237,000 square feet of new garden habitat. Welcome to the show, Mary. Welcome and thank you for having me. Really excited to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. So why don't we just start off right off the bat. Can you tell us more about the Garden for Wildlife organization? Sure, thank you. So Garden for Wildlife is a signature program and the Certified Wildlife Habitat uh, component of National Wildlife Federation. And um, and I apologize uh, for your notes. We actually started this in 1973, and we are going to oh. be 
hitting our 50th year next year. So we're really, really excited about that. Um, and uh, that has been around basically encouraging people. We actually hit 280,000 certified wildlife habitats just this month. Um, wow. Those, thank you. These are places that people uh, actually plant for wildlife by providing food, water, cover, and places to raise young. And the core piece of that are the native plants. Um, and we recognize those people. They uh, submit an application that they've done these different different components and uh, officially become certified wildlife habitats. So uh, really excited to be celebrating all those people. Um, and we do have people from across the U.S., really across North America that do that. Wonderful. That's amazing. Yeah. So I, this like home gardeners as well as like public and community gardens. Exactly. Actually, there's um, uh, getting close to 10,000 schoolyard habitats in that mix of the 280,000. Um, and it's about 90% residential private properties um, okay. in that mix of the 280,000. Cool. So you mentioned, just as you were describing Garden for Wildlife, you mentioned food, but you also mentioned, I think, a few other key considerations for wildlife that I don't think we naturally think of, such as a shelter. Yes. Uh, and can you, what are those? Sure, sure. Key Sure. So shelter, uh, sometimes also known as cover, those are areas um, that you, well, you can do it with um, native shrubbery. You can um, obviously also provide birdhouses. Uh, th there's a variety of ways, either supplemental things that you can do as a human, but we try to really also encourage the native habitats. So also leaving some old logs or snags for wildlife to create their homes in. So there's a variety of things that you can do that can do for that. And um, we also mentioned places to raise young. And what's awesome about that, you could also have a birdhouse for that. But for like butterflies, you can also provide host plants, um, which we can talk about a little bit more as we in the show. Okay, that's wonderful. You also mentioned your native plant collections. So you've sold over 4,000 native plant collections. What do the uh, native, what are the native plant collections? Where well, I will tell you about those. And, and actually that was our 2021 number. Now, as we've gotten through the 22 season, we are over 16,000 uh, wow. uh, collections sold. And what these are, are um, a combination of native plants that we have uh, curated for people that they can um, purchase kind of as a DIY starter garden um, for really to benefit butterflies, uh, native bees, and also birds. Uh, and they include um, a, a design, they, they include all these different components. But the reason they're curated is we worked with the research of Dr. Doug Tallamy and also a pollinator um, conservationist to really uh, look at the numbers that these specific uh, plants support. So um, in, in the case of the butterflies and moths, the Lepidoptera, um, we've chosen plants that are uh, keystone plants, which means they okay. support up to 90% of uh, butterflies and moths in a specific geographic area. Wow. So that's wow. true about all the different plants in each collection? We include uh, at least one or more of the keystone plants and then also plants that are key uh, hosts for pollen uh, specialist bees, which are bees that can only, they're native bees. Uh, there's, uh, you know, 4,000 across uh in the U.S. <laughs> I think there's 20,000 across uh, North America. Yeah. Um, but um, those bees can only really get their um, pollen and uh, nectar from specific plants that they've co-evolved with. 
Interesting. Yeah. Doug Tellamy's research. So for any of our listeners, if you've not read uh, Doug Tellamy, you definitely, um, I've heard him speak and I've read articles, but I haven't read his books yet. They're on my vacation list. <laughs> so, um, but I had, he spoke at Landscape Ontario a few years ago, pre-COVID. And uh, it was just fascinating to just see, because I think a lot of people think, well, it's just insects, right? Like, and, but it's not because then the, the birds that feed off of those specific insects exactly. and the other animals that feed off of those birds, like exactly. it really is the circle of life and it is a food chain. It is. Um, you know, it really is. And I think about growing up as a little girl and can remember like all the bugs on the windshield, right? Right. right. And, and that was something not he now. referenced and it was like a flash, like, oh my gosh, you're right. Like I can remember my dad, like as a little kid and the yeah. visiting my grandmother at night and like him having to like do the wipers. Right. And I've, I've never had to do that for my kids, you know? So it, it just shows you yeah. that the slowly and kind of secretly, not secretly, but just kind of that insects have been on the decline for many years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. I do have a question that has come in from Lee. Lee writes in and says, hi, is this habitat government funded or is it a private entity looking for donations? Thank you. Uh, thank you. So Garden for Wildlife is part of National Wildlife Federation, which is a 501c3. It's a nonprofit. Um, and these different habitats, people actually just uh, do on their own. So in the case of community groups, they might raise funds to purchase native plants. Uh, maybe a school would have a special drive or something to get people to donate plants to create a beautiful habitat garden. But the majority of these are just individuals who've invested uh, into their own properties and created um, these these as well. The plants themselves are available um, online and they go direct from growers uh, to the consumer, but they are um, just, you know, for purchase, but that money is put back into our habitat work at National Wildlife Federation. Okay. And so you are shipping plants, not just seeds. Correct. It's um, individual um, collections of, well, it's a collection of individual plants um, that um, they're about, uh, they've got a solid root base and they're anywhere from three to five inches of growth. Uh, depending on when in the season they're shipped. Yes. And, um, and they go right now we are uh, in 36 states in the US. We, we don't okay. currently have uh, the ability to ship to Canada at this at this time. Yes. Yeah. So just for those listening, I am, I don't know if we've mentioned it yet, but those plant collections, I believe you can find them gardenforwildlife.com. Yes the main website with tons of amazing uh, information photos and lots of social media there as well so definitely check out gardenforwildlife.com and for our canadian listeners if you go to nwf.org slash native plant finder you can get even more lists we don't have all these plants to send you but more comprehensive lists um of of plants um and and I think it's mostly the U.S., so you would need to look at the border states. Yes, to, to zones. zones. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, our listeners are familiar with our, our lack of being able yeah. to ship se- even seeds <laughs> back and forth and and plants back and forth. So, yeah. Uh, so yeah, they're used to that, but that's okay. Um, it just just knowing where to go for the research, sure. I think, is is really important. Yes. So, thank you so much. That's yeah. that's great, and I think it's great, and probably attributes to some of the success because seed starting can be pretty tricky for especially for novice mm-hmm. growers. So I think you're, you're starting people off for success by, by doing it as plants. I think that's an excellent idea. Thank you. Was it hard to get growers on board? 
I know we've actually been really fortunate and, and we're expanding as we, as we go, growers are really excited about this. The only challenge we've had is that when we launched and, and we're planning this original idea, it was pre COVID. Um, and so, so many growers were inundated and uh, as you know, gardeners and nurseries because everyone was home during COVID. So we've had to stagger, you know, their availability um, and capacity to produce more. But that's why one of the reasons we created it is that we were getting such a demand um, prior. um, We had been part of, and this was Many Canadians were involved in this. We were part of uh, coordinating the Million Pollinator Garden Challenge, uh, and a number of Canadian organizations were involved with that. Um, It was a North American effort, uh, and we saw such an increase in demand in native plants, we realized we needed to incentivize some kind of system that could really help native plant growers, because one of the reasons we heard is they're like, well, we can't grow enough milkweed because, you know, we don't know if the consumers are still going to provide this like demand and and we've got a plan, you know, in advance for the planting season. So we really wanted to create this system to give predictability and profit to these growers. Mm. That's great. That's amazing. So you can find out all about which collection is right for you and all the amazing plants on, um, that beautiful website that I just totally forgot, gardenforwildlife.com. <laughs> gardenforwildlife.com. Thank you. I got them up going both between both That's of them. All right. just That's awesome. <laughs> um, so is there any statistics, you know, so we know that the plant, like the plants unfortunately stop at the borders, right? So the Canadians, we have our pollinating plants and you have your pollinating plants, but that the butterflies go they, they don't go, stop. They go, right? <laughs> they come through the borders. There's no yeah. borders for them. And, yeah. and then they continue to Mexico. Yes. Um, so is there has there been any research as to like where there may be more of an issue, like where they're getting, let's say, stuck or where they're not doing well? Yeah. So the challenge is, in, and is really what we've seen across the U.S. as they come from Canada down to Mexico has been, um, well, everywhere where we've have a development that has wiped out habitat, but significantly the central migratory corridor, which is really, um, you know, from just the borders of um, Canada down through like Minnesota, all through the central part of the United States through Texas, that also is also been a highly agricultural belt. So you've got the combination of, you know, monocultural crops and the use of chemicals and pesticides for agriculture, as well as all of our populated cities where there's, you know, less habitat. So it's really those areas. And that's why we have these kinds of programs where people are creating habitat where they live. And to kind of at least give some stopping points and yeah, to stop help mitigate it, right? Yeah. 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 Cause I, I wondered about Texas. Like, I think we need Texas to be on board, right? Yeah. <laughs> Cause I yeah. feel like the movement in Canada and Ontario, like people are growing and I, there's been some, you know, local social media people yeah. say like, they cannot believe like everybody's got milkweed in their garden now and everybody's growing pollinator plants yeah. and, and nobody's seeing any butterflies. <laughs> so it's been like, and yeah. even some, like um, some of the, like there's a grower Anna's perennials like um so she's like we all of our plants that we you know that she's in kind of northern not she's not too far from where I am in 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 east in the 
the GTA, but she was just, she did a recent post saying, you know, we're surrounded, we've got our garden center and all of our native plants and we're surrounded by, um, you know, wildflowers everywhere and stuff. And there was still like in two years, she goes, is this 50% less? So I'm like, oh my goodness. So Mm -hmm. I don't know. Like, I I know there's always going to be ups and downs though, right? Well, weather's a big part of it. Mm -hmm. Um, So sometimes that has uh, impacted, you know, various populations of monarchs coming through if there's freeze or if there's, you know, that kind of thing. So it, it it is challenging. Um, And, and as many people probably may or may not know that these, these are generations of monarchs that come from Canada to Mexico. So we always say like where I live in Maryland, um, you know, you're seeing the children and grandchildren of (laughs) different, um, you know, monarch uh, families, I guess, um, if you will, that make it down to Mexico. And, um, and then Mexico is where they really track the numbers of those overwinning populations. And that's where we get the data of what has been successful in making that full migration. Excellent. Excellent. All right. looks like we've got some questions, Matt. Well, I was going to say, I think speaking of monarchs, as we hit into the monarchs, lots of our listeners have sent in questions uh, about monarch butterflies. Gail has written in, hello, folks. This is quite the show. How long do butterflies live? Thank you. Um, so they they actually don't live, they can sometimes live. So the the adult who lays their eggs, um, you know, over the the summer, um, it's sometimes just several weeks. um, So uh, to a month, because they, that's just their, their lifespan. Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, there's multiple generations within, yeah, Yeah. those who are flying north are not the same ones who are flying south. Correct. Um, And it could be one, two generations in between. Yeah. So Dawn Smith has already also written in, hello tonight. Uh, if I picked up a butterfly, does it hurt them? If not, what is the best way to do that? Thanks. My grandkids love them. They're <laughs> reaching for their butterflies. Sure, sure. I mean, you know, ideally we're not touching them too much because it does affect uh, the pigmentation on their wings and 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 so forth. So um, it's it's better to let them alight on you um, as opposed to picking up their wings. Mm. Yeah. yeah, and that's one of the amazing things about um, the Butterfly Conservatory in Niagara Falls. Mm -hmm. Uh, In Canada, you can probably throw bright colors and they all just come and land on you to investigate. Mm -hmm. Joyce has also written in, um, hi, what, hi down the garden path, uh, what plants attract butterflies? So maybe, um, Mary, do you have maybe, or do you see in your sales, is there like a top five or is there you yeah. know, the best-selling package, which ones? Would sure, have? sure. Well, we have some fun packages called Monarch Munchables and Pollinator <laughs> Power. Uh, and um, in those, we have different host plants. So we we talked about that a little bit earlier. Milkweed is the host plant for the monarch butterfly. Um, there are other host plants that we have for other types of butterflies in the collections. And that those are the plants that these particular species can, um, are the only plants, they can um, actually lay their eggs and their caterpillars will consume and create their chrysalis and and turn into monarch butterflies. Um, But we also provide very high producing nectar uh, plants like um, asters, goldenrod. Those are some of, those are keystone um, perennials really uh, for uh, butterflies and moths. And they 
support so many different species, um, really in the hundreds. Uh, so those are some key examples. Sunflowers are another really key species really? as well. Really? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. I think of I think of squirrels. When I think of sunflowers, yes, I think of true. squirrels. Well, the, so those are the really big, you know, mammoth, and those are great too. But the native sunflowers, uh, okay, really don't bother those. But they provide amazing nectar. They're high. Um, they they have tons of they support tons of generalist bees as well, um, bumblebees and and others. So they they're they're really phenomenal. Um, and then eventually they they do go to seed and support you know finches and other types of birds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Beautiful. That's good. Thank you, Joyce, for that question. Uh, Stuart has also written in. Hi, Joanne and Matt. I remember a past show of yours on chickens. Wow. From chickens to butterflies. Love it. <laughs> uh, my question, do monarch butterflies sleep or do they not sleep? Thanks. So Barry, do you know if they sleep? <laughs> it's embarrassing. That particular one, I, I'm going to assume they sleep. I actually will need to look that one up. I apologize. I've not ever no. been asked that before. Yeah, I think <laughs> they rest. I think they, they rest. rest. They definitely rest. They definitely rest. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. We'll have to, have to look that one get up. Get back to you yeah. there, Stuart. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, Ron has also written in a couple more questions. Uh, hi, is it legal to sell and buy butterflies to breed them? So that, it depends on the state. Um, we at National Wildlife Federation do not um, promote people um, selling and trading in, in butterflies or really any wildlife. Uh, mm-hmm. It just, <laughs> it's not conducive to their survival. Uh, in small settings, um, it's okay, especially we would say grow a patch of uh, milkweed so you can actually see and watch the caterpillars and them go through their actual life cycle. That's ideal. Um, some educators are able sometimes to take those into the classroom on a small scale that, you know, as long as it's limited. But the the more that we're buying and selling those, um, you could, you know, in a controlled kind of farm-like setting, it really actually breeds a lot of disease. So mm. we don't advocate for that. Yeah, for sure. I could see that. What do you think of, I know several, um, including my mother-in-law, who's probably listening, you know, people who like rescue the eggs, like the baby caterpillars and bring them inside and, and kind of raising them just for better su- thinking that it's better success and trying to, um, you know, uh, and, you know, wait for them to go into the chrysalis and then releasing them once they, uh, once they have, um, what's your, what are your thoughts? So it's kind of similar, Um, obviously, in a small setting for education, um, that can be okay. They're actually, we have a, uh, we're a part of Monarch Joint Venture, we collaborate with them, they have some uh, excellent resources for uh, safely raising uh, educational uh, purpose uh, monarchs in that kind of setting that you described, but both they and we kind of would prefer that happens outdoors, and you Mm. just naturally Okay. Create that habitat. Yes. Yeah. Actually, I mean, me too. Right. I can see they're thinking that the because at my mother in law's building, they, she knows the 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 maintenance people are just going to come and cut off, cut down that mon- oh. that milkweed, right? So she yeah. and in her mind, she's safe rescuing sure, it sure. and then feeding, you know, and it's, and she's done it successfully. Yeah. Um, Lots of you people know. do. It's, it's, yes. it's a, it's an emotional, passionate 
yes thing to do <laughs> yeah thing yes. to do yes. yes yeah um but providing for things outside in the garden is is preferred certainly yes, um we do have Ron, roy is asking saying um you know that it's a great topic tonight and beside plants are there any other foods or anything else we can put out to attract the butterflies or i guess we're not just wanting to attract them we're wanting to help them um, yes. So a puddling dish is really great. And that's uh, a shallow dish with uh, pebbles and stones. It has a very limited amount of water that you would want to, you know, change out and, 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 and empty every once in a while. So you're not also getting mosquitoes. But that is important because um, monarchs and also native bees, they, they don't like, you know, go in and slurp up a lot like in a bird bath they just sip very delicately and they also get the minerals that are um you know from the the stones and things that are in those kinds of puddling dishes oh good good and you mentioned earlier about logs i like logs and yes yeah that's more for other kinds of wildlife mm, okay yeah. mm -hmm. so did you also mention um sorry the monarch joint venture Yes, they are uh, a collaborative in the U.S. and it's a joint venture. So there's many, many uh, conservation organizations that have partnered with them. And we do some, you know, uh, promotional stuff, education. With them. Nice. Well, so I was just quickly looking up Stuart's question and, and they were the ones who came up uh, about whether or not do monarchs sleep. sleep. Yes. Yeah, right. Uh, and it depends on what, according to them, it depends on what you consider sleep. They rest at night or when it's cool in trees and shrubs and other sheltered areas. Uh, but they do so just kind of uh, like most insects. They don't have eyelids. And Correct. It's a state called torpor. Uh, yes. And they just kind of hang out there for a bit when yes. it's cool or slow or dark. Yes. yes. Yeah. yeah. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. And I think... Um, we have Sam, who is also just uh, written in as well. Uh, hi, Joanne and Matt. Cool show. What is the main reason or reasons that monarch butterflies are dying off? Yeah, so um, I touched on it a little bit earlier, but one of the main reasons is, I mean, the core reason is that their habitat is disappearing. So that's one of the reasons we're really trying to, you know, encourage people at such massive scales to uh, replicate uh, the milkweed habitat along with nectar plants. But the absolute other really critical thing is not to use chemicals because there's so many pesticides and herbicides in our environment that are systemic. And um, any of these uh, insects that um, take you know, nectar or pollen um, or eat the leaves <laughs> of these plants, it just, it kills them. I mean, it's systemic and it's, it's, that has been a huge, huge problem. And then the climate a little bit, you know, the weather uh, adaptations, you know, that that's an impact as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The, the unpredictability of the weather and, and yeah. the extremes, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So in our in the bio, um, and we labeled monarch as one of them. You mentioned the term iconic species. So, what does what makes an iconic species or a species iconic? An iconic species is one that so many of us have a real emotional kind of visceral connection to. I mean, you guys are in Canada, and we were just sharing before the show started. You know, our memories of uh, these. Uh, butterflies from childhood and particularly because this particular one has such a wide wide migration area there's just you know millions of people that have experienced this butterfly and so it's also stunning uh culturally 
uh, from here to Mexico, it's uh, it's a it's a symbol of heritage, lo locale, and particularly in Mexico, amazing cultural festivals around the monarch mm -hmm. um, that are you know indigenous people and others have embraced this species for generations. And so it's it's not only you know the the biological impact, but it's also this emotional cultural connection to this species. Yeah. yeah, that's definitely true about the monarch, for sure. Um, we were just out this week and thinking, we haven't seen any monarchs. And yeah. now we've been counting them as we go. And I think over the last like week and a half, we've seen maybe two. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, um, yeah, and I feel like it has almost been the opposite, like the more people are talking about it, and the more people are planting, but we're not still not seeing them, you know, um, but I, it just depends where you are in the luck of, you know, the location, right? So I, I get that, that they still well, could be there. It does. I think it's also you know, we're not out in our gardens all day. Yes, <laughs> so that's true. That's we do work for a living, right? Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. But I will tell you, so when I, in my area, my neighborhood, uh, the beginning of the pandemic, the neighbors got together and we did at our uh, entrance uh, to the community, a big butterfly garden and it's full of milkweed. And within, we planted tiny plugs in the beginning of June and by July, it was covered with caterpillars. And it was on a highway, like median, you know, uh, yeah. a little off to the side uh, entrance to our community. So, I mean, you just really it's I think you do need some density of milkweed that helps. Um, and then, you know, it also there are certain areas that they do migrate uh, in, in larger quantities. So mm -hmm. I think that's part of it. Yeah, that makes sense. Very nice. Well, as we reach the bottom of the hour, I'm going to uh, do my thing here and just uh, take a break and say thank you, everyone, for joining us here live on Reality Radio 101. I'm Matthew Dressing here with my co-host and co-author, uh, Joanne Shaw, and you're listening to Down the Garden Path. Joanne and I enjoy hosting Down the Garden Path each week, bringing you interesting and relevant topics to help you achieve a great garden. We learn right along with you from our research and from the wonderful guests that join us here on this show, such as Mary Phillips from uh, Garden for Wildlife and the National Wildlife Federation, as we talk all about monarchs and uh, native plants. So don't forget, you can spend more time with us down the garden path. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Down the Garden Path Podcast is our handle there. You can also find us on your favorite podcast provider with lots of past episodes and wonderful information. While you're there, please hit that subscribe button to be notified of new content. And please don't forget to like, share, and leave us a comment. We love hearing from you. You can always write us, get a hold of us any time of the day, even though we're not on, on uh, the show. You can rate us at Down the Garden Path Podcast at Hotmail. Dot com. You can also find us via our websites. You can find Joanne at downthenumber2earth.ca and myself at naturalaffinity.ca. So what else should we need to know or do we need to know about creating beautiful habitats for our monarchs? Is there anything we've missed? I think the other key thing is using these sustainable practices. Um, you know, the good thing about native plants is they're pretty adaptable 
to the areas that they are native to. So you don't need to like amend the soil with super rich, uh, you know, fertilizers or those kinds of things. I think people sometimes think that and sometimes that does more harm than good for the viability of the plants initially. And, um, and if you're, if you're actually planting small plants or from seed, you know, really making sure that you are watering them until they get established. Um, they usually obviously uh, adapt to the natural area and the rainfall that you have, but they've got to get established in that first year. Mm, right. Right. Yeah. Um, Oh, I think I just totally went blank on that, but Sean's going to save me here. Yeah. (laughs) Sean says, hi, down the garden path. Is milkweed poisonous for small kids or pets? Thank you. So milkweed uh, does have a a toxin for that's actually beneficial to the monarch butterfly. It is definitely something uh, children or kids should not eat, but they should not eat most plants unless they're edibles. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So my question that I totally blanked, thanks for jumping in there, Sean, um, was a lot of people have, you know, that just that grower's soil that, you know, that garbage, quote unquote, air quotes, that they start with in a new subdivision or they've neglected their soil. And I think they just feel the urge that, you know, I'm creating this garden or, you know, my soil is crap. What can I do? Do you, would you still say, is that true? Do they need to amend anything with um, I think it depends, obviously, how disrupted that area has been. But if it yeah. if it if it's I, I think trying it out at first or having your soil tested is really imp- is helpful. Mm-hmm. And and I know in the U.S. you can go to extension um, agents often to to do that. Um, but I mean, overall, native plants are pretty hardy. So I would try try it based on you know what you have they're pretty adaptable to clay soils i mean the the key thing is if it's like hard packed and you can't plant like Mm. then obviously you need to loosen it up and make it a little uh, more moist and adaptable definitely and i think like you say too you know our our native plants are so robust and adaptable right um you know there are natural places like where we are here in canada our native soil is a clay loam. So, you know, we do have clay in the soil and clay is a good part of soil, but Mm -hmm. yeah. So give it a try. You know, Mm -hmm. you may not have that bad, bad stuff or as bad, bad stuff. And you did make a good point about the numbers, like planting one milkweed plant may not do much. Like it's kind of, but I feel like there's this misnomer that, oh no, we're going to have it's going to take over, right? If oh. I plant milkweed, it's, it's, it's so invasive. It's going to take over. Good point. So we, if you have a large area or you're along a field or a farm, you know, farm area that you can control along a fence, the common milkweed is ideal and you will see more monarchs uh, to that really tall common milkweed. And that does spread. But if you're in a small urban or suburban setting, we recommend the, um, orange butterfly milkweed, uh, or the swamp milkweed, um, you know, some of the smaller compact, almost shrub-like sizes Mm -hmm. of milkweed. And that's what we actually have in our collections because these really are going to smaller areas. Right. Okay. That's a good point. Yes. I did get, I planted some of the butterfly milkweed, um, this year um, as well. Cause I've in the past I've, I've gotten like little pots of it and not been successful because you know, you have to keep watering it. (laughs) Like you said. Um, and this time I found a pot that was really well established. Um, so I've been like babying it and like, you know, (laughs) so hopefully I don't, I don't kill it with kindness because that's always the other challenge. Um, do things like mulch, like, like benefit or disadvantage, like, or, 
not benefit um, having the beneficial insects? Yeah. So, well, no, the mulch actually, like, especially when you're starting a garden and to keep the moisture in and around these newly established plants, mulch is fine. Um, okay. Obviously it's a, nat- a natural uh, season shredded hardwood, um, not something that's like fresh wood chips because that's right. not the nitrogen's too much uh, for the plants. And then um, I, you know, that that's fine. But the other thing is to think about low growing grasses as kind of a green mulch. And that's something we're looking into for um, this next year uh, to actually provide as well in these collections. Oh, that's interesting. Like a carex or some of those species. Yeah. Okay. Green mulch. That's interesting. Right. Do your plant collections, I think we always think of, you know, a certain time of bloom when I think of like echinaceas and rutabecchias and milkweeds, do your plant collections provide plants? uh, Do they all bloom at one time, I guess is what my question is. Excellent question. No, they do not. (laughs) We want to provide bloom for the wildlife across three seasons at least. And Mm -hmm. so usually the ones that we have a, uh, uh, just blanked on the name of it, uh, Spring Bee Buffet, which is, uh, we're trying to get more spring ephemerals so that you could have a collection that blooms in earlier spring, but then into the summer. Uh, but the the bulk of them are kind of core, the Monarch Munchables, the Pollinator Power. We have a Firefly Delight <laughs> as well. Um, they uh, are designed to like, really their bloom is like different plants may through summer through uh early fall and some late fall as well okay okay so there's a good yeah so there's a good seasonal coverage yeah um for everybody and i think we all think monarchs but like you said it's wildlife there's all these other components Mm -hmm. um, that really make everything work together Do you have a list of, so maybe they're not obviously in your little kit that you sent out, but shrubs, you yeah. know, I'm the, on the show, I'm the shrub girl, okay. and, um, <laughs> but, and they do play an important part, um, yeah. but are there any specific shrubs that are more uh, attractive to? Um... Yeah. So um, buttonbush is a, a great, a great um, one. Uh, elderberry, uh, another uh, really beautiful blooming uh, shrub that, help so many pollinators and then there's shrub like um that also are like bone set and some others that they get really big and they kind of look you know like a shrub um mm-hmm. and even in the early spring so the the false uh indigo um mm-hmm. the blue indigo uh Baptisia is it, it it's a perennial but it becomes quite big and shrub like in your yard and it has these gorgeous stalks that are really great for early um spring bees okay that's good to know but as far as the monarchs go they prefer milkweed so i don't yes. know if our listeners know that that is the only thing yes. um, we want them to lay their eggs on the milkweed and those that's the only thing that their caterpillars can eat yes. to successfully turn into butterflies so Correct. Yes. Um, In Ontario, we have an issue with a plant called um, dog strangling vine. Are you going to say that, Matt? So I don't know if if it's in the U.S. at all or if you've heard of it. What's the Latin name? Do you know? Uh, The Latin name is, just had it here, Uh, Vince Toxicum Grossicum. Vins toxicum yeah. nigrum. <laughs> oh, I, do, um, I do not. I'm not aware of that in the U.S., but I'll have to look that one up. 
Yeah. So we have, so apparently they, I thought they were in the milkweed family, but it's not, it just is a lookalike member Ah. of the milkweed family. And it is literally like, you know, it strangles any plant. So it's in our ravines, it's in our forests and it's strangling things. But because it looks like milkweed and the seed heads are very much like milkweed, we have an issue that that's where the butterflies are laying their eggs. And of course it's not, they can't eat that. The caterpillars can't eat it. So it is one of the things I think in Ontario, I can only speak for Ontario as far as Canada goes, but that's something we can all do because it's in our neighborhoods there. It's not many people know what it is. Like when I go for walks and people have like wound it up on their fence and stuff and I'm like ripping it out. Um, And it is, um, uh, oh my gosh, what's the, what's the weed killer? Blah, blah, blah. Not round up, round up, round up. It won't round up, won't kill it. Wow. So wow. it's, it's really, so really the only, and getting it out of the ground is actually quite hard. So at least if we can get it before it goes to seed. So for all our listeners, yeah. um, you know, please look up uh, dog strangling vine. If you see it, it needs to go in the garbage. If you, if you are managing to pull it out. Um, so public mm-hmm. service announcement, like yeah. doesn't go in the compost, doesn't go wow. in the, the paper bags that we put at the curb. It, it needs to go in a black garbage bag. And I think we've just spread the word naturally to our neighbors and our friends about it. And um, that it there's many reasons. One, it's not good for the plants either because it's it is smothering and killing plants. Right. But it also has that other situation where um, it's mistaken by the butterflies yeah, the monarch and as well as other like native butterfly species. Yeah, oh, I, that's really good to know. But I'll have to check that out. I have not heard about that in the US. Our challenge is the tropical milkweed, which is not native. And it does like provide nectar. And it is a milkweed, but it's not native to the US. And it actually keeps a lot of monarchs in the warmer states like from migrating because it, it's so plentiful. Uh, and then and then in those areas it does sometimes uh, spread uh, disease through the monarch populations I see because their generation's not changing right right oh that's interesting yeah interesting problem so yeah so I always do my little uh, infomercial for dog strangling vine because it just is I get you know people just don't know so yeah and you know if you really if you want to learn a little bit more about it just for everybody um invasive species center with re.ca uh has a wonderful um little write-up and fact sheet and pictures and identification and impacts uh fact sheet there for you too so invasive species center.ca is a great resource as well mm-hmm. and um I obviously want to promote gardenforlife.com. Yes, but absolutely. I, I do want to support, um, you know, across the border here are wonderful people we've worked with in the past at the David Suzuki Foundation who do mm-hmm. amazing amounts uh, of work with uh, milkweed and, and, and for the monarch. And the Canadian Wildlife Federation has a somewhat similar, they don't, as far as I know, they don't offer plants, but they have a similar habitat uh, program that we do here in the States at National mm-hmm. Wildlife Federation. So yes, you can become a it. ranger. Yes. You can become a butterfly way ranger, yeah. um, which I somehow I've kind of have become one. I'm still working on that. I have the signs and I have that's the with David Suzuki, right? Yes. With David yeah, yeah. Suzuki. Yeah. So I uh, definitely recommend looking um, for that. I'm a landscape designer in the industry. So it's always like, I have all yeah. these aspirations in my off season that I'm going to do all these extra things. Exactly. Right. But <laughs> you know, I'm sure you working in it, right. Makes it yeah. hard to do 
personally. Um, but you know, I was excited about the 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 milkweed. I have poke milkweed. I thought it was swamp milkweed, but I've just recently learned that it's poke milkweed, milkweed, and now I have butterfly weed. So I'm trying. Nice. Yes. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, so always. Mary, what about your certified wildlife habitat program? Can you, is it just for the States or can you also become certified in Canada? You can submit and we can send you a certificate and we'll recognize you in, in Canada. Um, so we would love for you to do that. But like I said, the Canadian Wildlife Federation has uh, also a kind of similar garden for wildlife effort. I don't think it's been around as long as ours, but um, they may have more resources for other parts of Canada, plant lists and things uh, to, to look at as well. But we would love, uh, we do certify wildlife habitat. We we have actually, we have, I think, 22 embassies certified around the mm. world, <laughs> which is wow. super cool. Oh. So we are definitely, uh, definitely want to spread this native habitat uh, message as far as we can. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And on that note, what is, so now we're like late August or mid August. Yeah. Um, so Linda's asking what time of year would we see the most monarchs and when do they start to mo- uh, migrate? So Linda, I think that depends on where you are, but yeah. yes. <laughs> yeah. So uh, right now the bulk of monarchs at this time of year are coming down through the U S and um, it's uh, really key sightings um obviously are anywhere along the central migratory pathway um this september there's often a huge uh congregation congregation that's not the right word uh uh, whatever gathering (laughs) (laughs) monarchs um in like the cape may new jersey area they have a big festival um and then in McAllen, texas like that's kind of where we're at in the migratory path of volume of monarchs um and then then but i think as we go and look through the whole journey um in canada i think it's earlier in the season that you would be seeing them um Mm -hmm. for the most part yeah yeah, I think, well, I think it now it's pretty popular. I think we're starting to see them start to get head down there. Yes. Um, yes. For sure. And and then in Mexico, it's kind of the end of, isn't it kind of around Halloween, like October, November, beginning of November? It, the monarch count happens in February. So ah, January, okay. February, that the, the, the real volume of wow. monarchs are down there because that's when they start really uh, track. Well, they're, they're always counting them, but the yeah. bulk of that overwinning pop wintering population um that's when they are counted um and then those numbers are usually come out at the end of february each year this year it was somewhat delayed but yeah yeah. okay yeah so that really is a long cycle isn't it Mm -hmm. wow isn't that fascinating it is it really is it really is yeah it really, when you stop to really think about it in mother nature, you know, it is amazing. And I think it's amazing that we can do a little bit. Everybody can do a little bit. I think yes. that's my biggest message, right? Yes. You know, whether it's, even if it's just one plant, yes. everybody can do, although we know we want but more of that one <laughs> <Yes>. plant, but. <laughs> but many, many people doing one plant in an area, you know, helps yes. you. And that's one of the things, I mean, they do, it does spread with its seed. Not the smaller ones do not aggressively, but enough to increase your patch and increase the opportunity for you, you to see monarchs. Nice. Well, Steve has written in as well, and he's wondering, do does your guest have a book out? If so, where can we check it out? Um, 
Well, I personally do not have a book, though that is a dream of mine. <laughs> um, but we do have a book about our Garden for Wildlife program that was written by our naturalist, David Mizajewski. And if you go to nwf.org slash um, garden slash resources, all of our, we have tip sheets and um, other kinds of resources, webinars, and the book is featured there as well. Excellent. Beautiful. So lots of resources. Yeah, the websites are absolutely beautifully well done. Uh, so if you guys haven't had a chance, yeah, nwf.org for the National Wildlife Federation website and gardenforwildlife.com uh, where there's lots of information. There's a plant finder quiz and you can shop all sorts of wonderful plant collections there as well. Mm -hmm. So Mary, what would you recommend? We've talked about native plants, these keystone plants supporting iconic species. I think sometimes, kind of as Joanne kind of alluded to, a lot of people think native plants and they kind of think derogatory, like weeds or something invasive or spreading. If we were going to get involved with native plants, where should we start? Do you have any recommendations or uh, maybe a way to look at it? Just maybe it doesn't seem so as overwhelming and wild. Sure. So one of the, the tip sheets we have on our website um, really does help you think about structure and form. So looking at the different um, growth patterns of some of the native plants so that you can have like a, a coreopsis border, which is a lower growing, you know, yellow plant, obviously finding the one that's native to you. Um, and then staggering, you know, a lot of the plants are big. I like to think of it as kind of, I guess in this case, since we're talking across North America, kind of a North American cottage garden look, um, mm -hmm. as opposed to like an English cottage garden, garden. Yeah. but <laughs> it's, you know, North American native cottage garden look. And I think thinking about it that way, and also, um, putting in features that, you know, like birdhouses, like, um, you know, some of these really neat uh, plant supports um, that are multicolored or just look really cool that, you know, you can add some um, contrast to the textures of the plants and also support them and keep them upright and a little more maintained because there is a fear. People are like, these are, you know, a lot of these grow in the wild and it's going to be like just like a big meadow in a, in a confined area, people get mm -hmm. nervous about that, but there's ways mm -hmm. to, you know, architecturally, um, you know, structure it and also pick plants that bloom throughout the seasons, um, that have good texture, um, that balance, you know, kind of more shrub-like with those that are, like I said, the lower growing kind of almost ground cover types. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think you can um, have other, like I think of the poor hydrangea, right? Everybody yeah. loves hydrangeas. Unfortunately, they're not really a pollinator plant, right. um, but they do have some structure. So, you yeah. know, you can have you the, the monarda and the coneflowers and the different things. And like you said, you can still have an, an attractive um, garden. So I, I feel like people tend to be, you know, it's all or none kind no, of thing, right? Point. Yeah. yeah. And, and, actually, and yeah. yeah, to support um, wildlife, we kind of recommend because we realize people have their favorites of these, um, you know, plants they've grown up with that are kind of heirloom or heritage, like whether they're roses or hydrangeas or mm -hmm. lilacs, it's kind of an 80, 20, like 80% natives. And then, you know, balance it out with those others that you also really love. Yeah, exactly. And they can do exactly like you said, add structure and help 
help contain and help, um, you know, beautify some of the native, you know, plants as well. Because I think sometimes when they start to lose their seed and we want to leave them to lose their seed and and let the the bees and the birds eat from them, they Mm -hmm. don't necessarily look their best. But that they're functional, you know? So I think that's what, you know, I, I find in my yard, I was tired of fight, fighting this, the chipmunks. So we just feed, <laughs> feed the garden for birds with the plants, you know, right. with the pagoda dogwoods and with our dogwoods and with our grasses and stuff that the birds can eat from yeah. and they do. So it's, they it's do. very wonderful um, to see. So I think people have to kind of stop, change their view of, yeah. of a garden and yeah. that native, it doesn't mean it has to all be native plants. Right. Right. So. so as we reach the last ooh, six minutes of the show, <laughs> um, Mary, is there anything else you want to uh, you know, let our listeners know about or share with us before we wrap up the show this evening? Um, yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, I think I'm just really thrilled. You know, one of the things I love about creating this habitat and the fact that you know, it really, there are no borders when we're talking about wildlife Mm -hmm. and when we're talking about these regions. um, So there's another, you know, kind of way to look at this is that we're all part of, you know, various eco regions. And I think that's, you know, actually how we also are curating these plants in these collections is at the eco region level. And so, um, you know, I think it's important. I think, you know, this migratory path of the monarch, it kind of connects us all because we all can do our part. So it's something that we're all kind of doing. So it's, it, I, I really, you know, love the fact that the, the monarch migration connecting us throughout North America, I think looking at um, not only the impact that we can make, but also the symbolism and the heritage of the species is a way that we're really all connected. Mm. Yes. And we can all really do our part. Yeah. I love that. Yes. And there is, um, I think, a bunch of eco-region. If you're wondering more about your eco-region, uh, there's a lot more to be said about the eco-regions and which one you're in. Uh, I found it on uh, nwf.org. Yes. Uh, there's some very deep and interesting resources there for that, too. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, actually, if you go to nwf.org slash keystone plants, we have ecoregion lists of plants as well. And you can look at the ecoregion map and figure out where you Yes. That's what I was trying to find my way back to. I saw yeah. that big, beautiful map that yeah. makes it so visual to see, you know, yeah. the world through the eco zones. It's just beautiful. Yeah. Sure. And the more knowledge we spend about, we share about the different plants that people can use and, yes. and the different practices. Um, I know Matt and I speak about a lot on the show of the practice of, you know, um, you know, they used to be like, put the garden to bed in the fall and, and clean it all up and, and cut everything back. And, and really we're finding that that really we're hurting their habitat. So right. really it's best to um, spread the word to your friends and neighbors also that um, it's okay to leave the ple- the plants up. They don't, it doesn't matter what, what, what happens in winter, you know, you can right. Right. let the garden just go to rest right. and then do that tidy up in the spring. And and just in closing, I mean, there's actual science that um, we actually have been part of. So our certified wildlife habitats 
across five metro areas in the U.S. have been studied in suburban and urban areas and actually have found um, that the more areas that have certified wildlife habitats within them actually show higher bird species diversity and turnover as well as, um, you know, the diversity of butterflies and bees. Um, so th- it's uh, it was a study that was uh, funded by the National Science Foundation uh, over several years, and they're studying all these different kinds of landscapes. So the certified wildlife habitat yard versus the lawn heavy yard versus like a xeriscape um, and also natural areas. And these studies are really amazing. And we actually have a webinar. It's like, if you build it, they will come and it tells you about the impact and all the papers that have been written on that. And that's also in that resources section that I mentioned, um, nwf.org slash garden. And then you go to resources and it has those those webinars and those papers. Um, And then we also, there were other studies that really showed that if you created this elements of habitat with the native plant concentration and diversity of native plants, you can, you know, really it's like you'll see 50% more wildlife than a yard that's like traditionally lawn heavy with lots of ornamentals. So Mm it's, it's not just like fun and beautiful. (laughs) Um, You're actually going to, we have science that shows this makes a huge impact. Excellent. Excellent. Well, that's great. That is beautiful. That is wonderful. Yeah. Cause I think that's the big word, right. Is go back to natives and, you know, support and climate change. And yeah, it's nice to see the science. It does have to balance. I mean, as a landscape designer whose homeowners are, you know, are coming along, but for the most part, they (laughs) still want, you know, that pretty low maintenance gardens, right? So, so they don't want their front yards to necessarily look like a field. So there, there really has to be, you know, I'm working really hard to figure out all many of us designers are just to make sure we're incorporating as many native plants as possible, um, but still helping set up the the clients with success and, and, and a in yards. Yeah, absolutely. And mm-hmm. but the, the the beauty of it is there's such a selection of native plants mm-hmm. out there that have various form uh, yes. as well as function. So you can and I've seen, I'm sure you guys I you know have beautiful designs um that incorporate all that as well. Yeah, Indeed. that's great. That's great. Well, that brings us to another wonderful episode. Thank you so much, Mary, for joining us this evening and sharing all this wonderful knowledge on monarchs and native plants. Uh, and I'm sure there are hundreds of listeners out there tonight uh, who have been inspired to dabble and, and build and grow uh, more to support our naked, native uh, iconic species, especially the monarch. So thank you so much. Thank you. And thanks for all you guys are doing in the space. It's wonderful. Oh, that's great. (laughs) Well, thank you. (laughs) So yes, everyone check out uh, Mary Phillips and her colleagues, all the wonderful efforts. Definitely check out gardenforwildlife.com as well as nwf.org and all the wonderful native uh, plant and garden resources there. We'll have all of that and all your social media and everything in our show notes as well. So, so tune in. So those are live listeners as well as uh, people who will listen later on the podcast. Um, Everything will be there for you to do some more research. And uh, um, yeah, and that's great. Exactly. Oh, I always forget the show notes bit. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) And speaking about listening later next week, uh, next week's episode uh, we are not going to be here. However, we have lined up with you uh, a, an episode, a repeat episode of the Food Garden Life Show, 
starring Emma Biggs and Stephen Biggs. Also here in RealityRadio101.com. What's special about it is Joanne and I have joined Stephen and Emma, our fellow broadcasters, and we're talking all about garden tips as well as the new Down the Garden Path book. Down the Garden Path is step-by-step to your Ontario garden. So check that out next week our regular time on uh, August 22nd. In the meantime, again, another heartfelt, I can say that, Uh, thank you to Mary for joining us this evening. Thank you everyone for tuning in here on Reality Radio 101. And uh, we will see you next week. (laughs) Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to Down the Garden Path with your host, Joanne Shaw and Matthew Dressing right here on Reality Radio 101.